0: In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Good, evening. Good evening. It's nice to see faces. It was Labor Day week. You know, it's Labor Day weekend. You never know how many people are getting off the mountain because everybody else is coming up the mountain. And uh, you never know on these weekends, but it's nice to see you guys. Um, Nehemiah chapter 4 tonight. And Sandy, whether she knew it or not, chose some excellent songs for Nehemiah chapter 4. So. Let's get into this. After getting a project started, which requires overcoming great inertia, some of us are not self-starters, so we know that, but after getting a project started, the next hardest part is getting over the halfway point. There's a temptation in all of us as we grow weary halfway into a project or into an endeavor to... Settle for good enough. I got it started. It, let's just Here's a perfect example. I talked so many people go through this. How many of you are really good at reading half a book and not so good at reading the whole book? <laughs> I think a lot of us, we can relate to that idea. Um, there's, this, there's this moment in anything that we set out to do. Halfway in, we face discouragement. We think, well, at least I did it, or this is good enough. Discouragement is huge and it can take us down. And when we look at our Christian life, we really need to understand how to overcome discouragement because there's not a single Christian who's somewhere in the middle of their walk of life at many different stages of your walk. Don't feel burdened, tired, discouraged. Nehemiah feels that tonight and we're going to look at him. So tonight they get to the halfway point of building the wall. If you look at chapter four, verse six, it says that we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height for the people had a mind to work at the halfway point. But there's going to be a lot of discouragement that comes to them at this point. Look at verse 10. In Judah, it was said, remember Judah is basically like a county in which Jerusalem sits. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is falling. There is too much rubble by ourselves we are not able to rebuild the wall too much rubble have you ever felt that in life? it's just too much I can't keep going this is where they are and they are discouraged now discouragement is the result of looking at rubble and comparing it to our strength When the rubble is larger than our strength, we get discouragement. If we flip it, however, and look at the rubble compared to God's strength, that's called courage. And that's what we're going to see tonight is that they have to learn to not compare the rubble to their own strength by ourselves. We're not able to do it. They said in verse 10, but to look at this in light of God's strength and power. And so that is what Nehemiah is going to have to do. That's what he's going to lead the people to do. And we as Christians, as we work in God's kingdom and we work in the ways he's given us tools, we must understand how to overcome discouragement. So we're in the middle of, what is this, number four? Yeah, the fourth message of leaving Babylon. In Daniel, we saw how to survive in a pagan culture. In Ezra and Nehemiah, we're learning how to leave Babylon for good and establish our lives in this rink-a-dink remnant called Christianity and building up Zion. That's what we're seeing. Um, because we as Christians, we're good at rejecting Babylon in our minds. We know like the Babylonian culture around us. Like, yep, no, we don't do the world's things. We say the right things. We recite creeds and we read scripture and we we have the right info. But when it comes down to it, we haven't all, in fact, none of us have completely ejected Babylon from our hearts. It's not enough to reject Babylon. We must completely get it out of our lives. That's what Jesus followers do. We seek to live and advance His kingdom here on earth until He returns and makes it glorious. This, this rubble, brothers and sisters, this rubble is going to be glorious. You are rubble, but you are going to be glorious. You're also trouble, just so you know. Rubble and trouble, somewhere they become glorious. So, leaving Babylon occurs in three phases. We see um, Zerubbabel leads the first wave of Jews back to the promised land, and they rebuild the temple. The second wave is Ezra, and he teaches them the word. The third wave is Nehemiah, and they rebuild the wall. This is also the phases in which we grow as Christians as we leave the world behind us. We must grow in worship, building the temple of God, and this is what we do week to week. We learn how to worship. Then we go to the Word, and we do this day by day. We learn to hear from the Word how to live. And then we go to the walls. And the walls really are a result of us worshiping God properly and following His Word correctly. These are what protect us from the Babylonian influence around us. Walls are not in the Bible. These walls are not about excluding people. They're about keeping the wrong people out so that the uh, ways of God are not compromised within. Because the walls have gates and gates are made to let people in and out. It's not an exclusionary thing. It's a protection thing. In the ancient days, a city with walls was a city that was safe. It was a place of salvation. And that's what Nehemiah's tasked with building is a place of salvation. Jesus said that we are, after the Beatitudes, which we had recited, he said that we are a city on a hill. We are to be that place that travelers see as salvation. When they're weary with the trouble and rubble of the world, they know where to go. So last week, Nehemiah began the work. Tonight, we see him getting halfway through the work. And actually, you'll see this in chapter six. We can go up there and look now. He's going to finish it in chapter six. This is six, verse 15. So the wall was finished on the 25th day of the month of Elul. In 52 days, they finished the wall in 52 days. That's, that's remarkable by modern standards. I know how construction works and everyone agrees. It's a miracle that this room and the the classrooms for the school and the things we want at the Bible college, all this was done in a summer. It was nothing short, but a miracle because I've seen what, const- sorry if you were construction, but we know how you are. You set up camp, <laughs> you set up camp so no one out get, gets the job and then you move on to other projects and you come back around eventually. Mm-hmm. Now these people had a mind to work. They got it done in 52 days. And uh, verse 16, the enemies around them heard this and they were upset that God helped them. So, all right, there we go. I'm going to summarize chapters 4, 5, and 6. because that's the unit we're looking at tonight. But we're going to look mostly at chapter 4. So I want to give you guys a summary of what's going on. In chapter 4, um, Nehemiah and the builders are going to face taunts and threats. The enemy is going to squeeze around them. Sandy picked great songs because they were about battle. Nehemiah and the workers are facing battle. We read, I should say prayed Psalm 70 a little while ago. It's one of my favorite psalms, and it's a psalm about feeling besieged and pleading with God to make haste and deliver us. This would have been in the hearts of the people. They face taunts and threats. Chapter five is a bit parenthetical, meaning it doesn't really advance the narrative. It's kind of like a... This was happening somewhere in the midst of all this. So you call it a parenthetical section. It's just kind of put in there for additional information. Chapter 5, we see there was a famine and there was injustice. Some of the more wealthy Jews were giving loans to those who, because of the famine, weren't able to pay taxes. And the wealthy were generously giving the loans, generously, because they knew that they would never pay back the interest and that they would eventually get to claim the land. So what ends up happening, some people are selling their sons and daughters as slaves because they couldn't make ends meet. And Nehemiah is living and he fixes it. He fixes it. Then in chapter 6, we return to the the embattled people theme. And in chapter 6, we see slander. Sambalot and Tobiah come back into the picture, and they try to slander Nehemiah to intimidate him, to make him stop. Slander is a real deal with the enemy. And that's why it's so important that we live upright lives, is because if you get slandered, are people going to believe it? And it's, it's a great testimony to the church. People are like, no, that wouldn't happen there. I know those people. All right, but now let's look at chapter four. So um, we need to leave Babylon defended against discouragement. If you're going to make the trek, leave the world behind you and press deeper into the kingdom of God, you need to be defended against discouragement because the enemy is going to fire those discouraging arrows at you and say, see, you're a loser. What is God going to do for you? You've made no progress. That's how he speaks to us. We must defend ourselves against discouragement. So let's read chapter four, and then we will go back and point out what's going on. Nehemiah 4, verse 1. Now, when Sambalot heard, remember he was the villain we were introduced to last week, and he's got a sidekick named Tobias. Remember, it's like Jafar and his annoying parrot. (laughs) Now, when Sambalot heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and said, Yeah! What are they building? If a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. <laughs> and then Nehemiah prays in response. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in the land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt. Do not let their sin be blotted out from your sight. For they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. Mm -hmm. Do you like that prayer? Or is that a challenging prayer? Maybe we'll come back to it. So we built the wall. And all the wall was joined together to half its height. For the people had a mind to work. But... Halfway point, here comes the butt. But Sambalot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashadites, now they got a crew, heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed. They were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we, once again, prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is falling. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said, They will not know our seed till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. Well, that's a threat. In verse 12. And at that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, you must return to us. Presumably, they're they're saying, the Hebrew is very uncertain here, but they're saying possibly, get out of Dodge. It's getting bad, right? Get out of Jerusalem. You don't know what they're plotting. So verse 13. In the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans, with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. In verse 15, when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. And from that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half, held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail, and the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. That's multitasking. (laughs) Each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So with these plans in place, the people are armored and working. Nehemiah's got people stationed. He's got a trumpet ready to declare if there's any trouble. With all of this set in place, we labored at the work. And half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. And I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that he may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Or in other words, by not taking off their clothes in the evening, it means we weren't getting too cozy in our beds. We were ready at a moment's notice to jump out and defend Jerusalem. That's called vigilance. That's called watchfulness. One of the ways that we end up discouraged is we get distracted. When we forget who's working with us and what we're working for, we get discouraged. And this is the aim of spiritual warfare, is to distract us from why we're here and what's important. Which is why we love the gospel. And we preach it to ourselves and to each other over and over and over because it is the art of spiritual warfare to distract us from what is truly Happening around us. Nehemiah chapter 4 is about spiritual warfare. No, you don't see demons flying around in this chapter, but you see the effect of the spiritual realm behind what's going on. Mostly, spiritual warfare wants to distract us from God's strength. It's truly He who builds His church, it's truly He who builds the walls of Jerusalem. But as soon as we are distracted from who is the true builder and that we're simply working with him, if we lose sight of that, that's when we get discouraged. That's when verse 10 says, the rubble's too much. By ourselves, we're not able to rebuild the wall. Well, duh, you're not able to do it by yourselves. And God never asked you to do it by yourselves. But they were distracted because spiritual warfare is a master at that. So, brothers and sisters, Spiritual warfare comes down to this question, not are demons real? How do they work? Are they organized? What do they do? That's not the proper question here. The proper question is about spiritual warfare is will we compare the rubble to our strength or will we compare the rubble to God's strength? That's the battle. And half the time we lose, maybe more. We must continually be reminded to remember the Lord. So we see in chapter four that Sambalot and Tobias seek to distract Nehemiah and the builders three times. First, through taunts. Through taunts. You saw that in verses 1 through 3. Um, what are they doing? And then I, I just love how uh, Tobiah jumps in and talks about, even if a fox runs on the top of it. You know how quiet foxes are? How light of foot foxes are? Like, you hear coyotes moving around through the brush sometimes. You'll know it's a coyote. You can hear them. They're not really seeking to be quiet. They're kind of the top dog around here. But the fox, you never hear a fox. Like, you don't hear them moving around. They're stealthy. You don't see them as often. Um, if even this light-footed animal goes on the wall, it's going to fall down. They're taunting them. They're making them feel like what they're doing makes no difference. Have you ever felt like that? Mm-hmm. That what you're doing is not good enough anyways? That's taunting and spiritual warfare. The demons want to taunt us. They want us to feel like we're making zero difference. So why even bother? Uh, second, they, they first taunt them, but second, they confuse the work. Demons love confusion. Oh, they hate order. God is one of order. Genesis 1 tells us that. God brings everything into order. There's seven days. There's a place for night and day, for sea and for land. There's there's order and structure, but the demons, no. They want to bring in confusion. And that was verse 7. Sambalot and Tobiah heard that they were still moving forward. So in verse 8, they plot with a bunch of other people against them. And then it said that they caused confusion in Jerusalem. So just by throwing out this idea, just by bringing together allies as they're looking over their wall in Jerusalem, like, "Oh, Sambal and Tobiah have a pretty large army with them. <laughs> now there's confusion. Should we keep going? What's going to Are they going to attack us? So Sambal's like, make them keep guessing. <laughs> That's the idea, though. If we can keep on going, I wonder what the devil's doing today. Is he doing this? amount a of it? We are completely losing it. We're lo- we are distracted. <laughs> So, I, um, students, high school students love asking questions about angels and demons. And I get it. It's fascinating. But, um, often my answer to them is, well, you know, um, I, I just, the Bible has things to say about it, but not, a, it's not perfectly clear. And so I typically try to sidestep those questions because I think it's a huge distraction. They just want to know and get excited and it's not really like, is that really going to help you right now? No. Mm-hmm. Now, if one-on-one, if there's real cases, that's a different story, but. Uh, they're confusing the work. So they're taunting, they're confusing, and then third, they're threatening. This is verse 11 through 12. And this is where it gets really real, right? In verse 11, they say, our enemy said, they will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. In other words, they won't know what hit them until they're dead. Yeah, that's a threat. Now, does Sambalat and Tobiah, do Sambalat and Tobiah ever actually launch an attack? We don't see a single attack. And this is what we have to understand about spiritual warfare. If we are in Christ, if we remain in Jerusalem behind the salvation walls, we cannot be touched, but we can be distracted. And this is what they're trying to do. So how do we defend ourselves against such distractions? Nehemiah has two approaches. So I will suggest to us that we have two approaches to defending ourselves against distraction. And the first is that we have to remember that we are not alone. We have to remember that we are not alone. Verse 14, I looked and I rose and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome. Verse 15, when our enemies heard that this was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we returned to the wall. Also verse 20, in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there, our God will fight for us. Remember the Lord, he's great and awesome. God frustrates their plans and he fights for us. We must remember, we are not alone. There's nothing we do, well, nothing we should do, That is completely initiated by us. We're looking for where is God at work on the wall, and we join God there. We're not alone if we're seeking where God's at work, and we are working alongside him. That is what we must remember, that we're not alone. Now, um, this is also perfectly shown to us in the text, the way they shape the text in a literary way. You guys will know that time to time we talk about the chiastic structure. So hopefully by now you're kind of like, oh, I know what that is, and I don't have to keep reminding you what it is. But it's, it's that idea of you work, themes are repeated but in a mirrored fashion. So if you think, like, starting on the octaves on a piano, and then you move in the keys, and you move in the keys, and then you get to the center. Um, that's what we see in this chiastic structure. So here, here's, here it is. There's three, there's three parts going in, three parts going out, and the middle is the main point. Here's how it looks. The first part is in chapter 7 through 9. And that's where we see Jerusalem. Jerusalem is threatened in 7 through 9. Jerusalem is threatened. The second part is the wall. And in verse 10 through 12, we see that the wall, well, there's hindrance to the work because the people are discouraged. The rebel's too much. We can't do it. So Jerusalem's threatened. The wall work is hindered. And then the third part is encouragement. Jeremiah or Nehemiah then stands up in verse 13 and 14 and says, remember the Lord. So Jerusalem's threatened. The wall is hindered, but he encourages the people. Then we see in verse 19 to 20, the theme of encouragement. Again, God will fight for us. Then we return to the theme of the wall in verse 21. So we labored at the work. The wall that was hindered is now resumed. And then finally, in verse 22 to 23, we return to the theme of Jerusalem. At first it was threatened, but now it's defended in verse 22 and 23. Um, uh, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem that we may be a guard by day and by night. Jerusalem is defended. So we see that the problems in the beginning are resolved at the end. And what is, what's the pivot in this structure? The pivot, the very center of these three themes is in verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we returned to the wall, each to his own work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half of them held spears and so forth. And so they were able to continue work on the wall. Um, Verse 15 is the pivot. God enters into the fray and God frustrates the plans of their enemies. The battle belongs to the Lord. God came in and he fought. That's how Jerusalem threatened becomes Jerusalem defended. The wall hindered becomes the wall resumed. And on either side of those, Nehemiah is encouraging them and then right in between his two encouragements, we see that God actually acts to frustrate the plans of their enemies. This is what Nehemiah wants us to see in the way he set up this narrative is that God is with us. He's there in the scene with his people and he is frustrating. Now we didn't, they didn't see this big hand come out of heaven. They didn't see fire stones coming down. Sometimes that happens, but in this case, it's much more the way we experience God at work silently behind the scenes. Suddenly things are turning and this is the work of God. The same way we don't see the demons, we don't always see God's deliverance, but we. We can recognize when it happens. He's at work and Nehemiah is pointing it out to them. God is with us. That's how we stay focused and not distracted. We have to remember it does not matter what opposition is coming. No matter the discouragement that we feel, God is with us. And behind the scenes, he is working to frustrate the plans of our enemies. The second way we defend ourselves from distraction is that we remember who the real enemy is it's so easy to think Sambalat and Tobiah are jerks I'm going to cancel them on social media (laughs) make sure everybody knows how I feel about them but that is actually exactly what spiritual warfare wants to happen to us there is a perceived enemy and there is a real enemy The perceived enemy is Zambalot and Tobiah. They're perceived because they're the one you see. But then there's the real enemy, the devil and his minions, who are working behind flesh and blood to cause us to be distracted. Ephesians 6 verse 12, the great chapter on spiritual warfare, puts it like this. You and I, brothers and sisters, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In Nehemiah's terminology, we're not wrestling against Sambalot and Tobiah. But, Paul continues, we wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our battle is the unseen realm who are at work in real ways, but we cannot allow ourselves to be distracted by the enemy we see because that is simply a decoy for the real enemy at work behind the scenes. The way I like to think of it is that demons are the masters at deflection. They throw something at us and then they hide behind Peter. And then we say, Peter, how dare you? And then we get mad at Peter. and Then we're divided. And then we're then the Spirit of God can't work because there's a breach in the wall. That's their goal, and that's their plan. So we need to remember who the real enemy is, and um, in a memorable way. If you know the Hunger Games, great. If you don't, forget about what I'm about to say. But this is a this is a theme in the second part of the Hunger Games is that um, the, the Katniss has to remember. She's told by her mentor, Haymitch, remember who the real enemy is. She's about to go to fight with humans, but they're not the real enemy. It's the power of the empire that's making this war happen that's the real enemy. Katniss, don't lose your mind. Don't lose your focus. There's a bigger war here. Mm-hmm. Brothers and sisters, when you can't stand certain names, let's say this, if, if your frustration has a name, you're distracted. Mm-hmm. 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 Let's learn to forgive and let go and to understand who's really at work. And let's keep our eyes on Christ, One of the ways I think that Nehemiah beautifully does this is in his really hard prayer in verses 4 and 5. I think that in this prayer, Nehemiah is identifying the real enemy. Let me read it again so you can kind of pick up on what we're referring to. This is verse 4. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. That is not a prayer that reflects one's desire for human salvation. (laughs) And I think most of us read that and go, Nehemiah. Like, shouldn't we pray for Sambalot and Tobiah to be saved instead? He's praying the opposite. Let them not be forgiven. Let them be thrown out. And all kinds of really harsh words. It's like, who's really angry here, Nehemiah or Sambalot and Tobiah? But I need to remind you, brothers and sisters, that this is biblical prayer. We see the Psalms pray this way. Goodness, Psalm 3, one of the first psalms, one of the first. That's uh, probably the second, third the psalms that I wrote that I introduced to you guys. Um, how many are my foes, O Lord? How many are rising up against me? That's a psalm about enemies attacking. And you know how that song goes. Arise, O Lord, save me, my God. You who strike all my foes on the cheek. You who break the teeth of the wicked. Uh-huh. Have you struggled singing that with me? Did anybody even think about that? Wait, I'm praying what? God, crush the teeth? And Dr. Guy said, wow, because he's a dentist. Uh, <laughs> break the teeth of the wicked? Like, is this an okay prayer? <laughs> and I want to recommend to you that, yes, properly and theologically understood, this is theological prayer. When, when um, the devil deceived Adam and Eve... And they ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Uh, There were pronouncements that were now going to happen. Well, you're going to do things without me. So God says these are the results. And there's the so-called curses that are given. Uh, Cursed are you and cursed um, is the ground. Um, But then there's this little part, right? Genesis 3.15. He says, look, the serpent's going to bruise the woman's heel, but the woman will crush the head of the serpent. And he's talking about the seed, the offspring of these two, the serpent and the woman. They will duke it out until finally the serpent is crushed for good. Um, so from that moment on, it, it picks up immediately with Cain versus Abel. We see the theme played out from Cain and Abel on, that there are two seeds. There are two sides in this cosmic drama, and they are battling. Now, the seed of the serpent are are those who are being used by the devil. They have chosen their side. They're being used by the devil. And there is judgment for those who are siding with demons. That, that's a theological picture. There are actually people who are the seed of the serpent. Um, what Nehemiah is doing here in this prayer, and by the way, that's Psalm three, um, arise, Lord, see me, my God, you strike on my foes on the cheek, break the teeth of the wicked. What, what is that a picture of? It's a poetic picture of the skull being crushed. It is, Psalm, it's Genesis 3.15, that God will crush the head of the serpent. That's what the psalmist is praying in Psalm 3. Uh, that's what Nehemiah, in less graphic language, is praying here. He's praying that the seed of the serpent would be destroyed and crushed. So l- let me put this another way. This is not a prayer reflecting um, a lack of wanting to see the human saved. This is rather a prayer calling down judgment upon the demonic work that is going on. And this is what the Psalms teach us to pray, is to pray for the reality behind the perceived reality. We're too stuck on praying and thinking about human enemies when the Psalms teach us to look beyond. Oh God, come to my assistance. Oh Lord, make haste and help me. Let there be shame and confusion on those who seek my life. Let there be shame and confusion on those who delight in my harm. That was Psalm 70. We prayed it. What's that prayer about? It's about we are all besieged every day by a horde of the unseen realm that want to take us down, that want to distract us, that want to ruin the fruits of the kingdom in our lives. And we must learn from the Psalms how to pray directly against the enemy. That's what I think Nehemiah is doing. He doesn't literally wish Sambal and Tobiah go to hell. He wants the demons and the seed of the serpent to be squashed by the work of the seed of the woman, by the work of God. Paul says this, that the church will, soon the God of peace will crush Satan beneath your feet. It's Romans 16. It's one of my favorite verses that I only discovered somehow in the last couple of years. It's like all these years of reading the Bible, how did I never notice that one? Okay. Um Enough of that. Um, demons are masters of deflection. So again, don't focus on the name. Don't focus on the person. Ephesians 6 tells us four times, stand, withstand, stand firm, stand therefore, and take up the whole armor of God before he even talks about the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, and all those things, before he even mentions those things, he tells us four times to stand and to stand firm, to stand therefore, having done all, stand. Stand, stand, stand. That is Paul's theme in spiritual warfare. It's what Nehemiah needs to do, and he's asking the people to do in Jerusalem. Look, don't focus on them. There's a real enemy behind this. Don't worry about Sambloth and Tobiah. They're mere flesh. They will be consumed in a breath one day. They will die like us. We must stand and continue the work. That's why Ephesians 6 begins with, Be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. Um, Nehemiah was so, dis- uh, th- they tried so badly to distract him from standing in Jerusalem. Chapter 6, um, I don't actually want to, uh, it'll take a little too long to read it, but here's what's happening. Um, Sambalot and Tobiah realize that they're not gaining ground in chapter 6. So they come to more cunning and crafty methods, like in verse 2. Sambalot and Geshem sent to me saying, Come and let us meet together at Hakaphirim in the plain of Ono. And Nehemiah said, oh, no, because <laughs> he perceives they intended to do me harm. And he sent messengers to them saying, I'm not leaving. I've got too great of a work to come down to you. They persist. So it's like five times they ask him, come meet with us, come meet with us. Probably we want to make peace. And, but Nehemiah refuses to be discouraged. He recognizes that he's in the heart of God's hands and God's work, and he will not leave. He's going to stand firm. See, spiritual warfare wants us to leave our position in Christ, to get distracted, to seek other ways of bringing out God's work. And Christ saying, "Nope, stay with what I've given you to do." Nehemiah refuses to leave, so he succeeds there. But then, in verse ten of chapter six, in this really sick twist, Sambalot hires Shemaiah. We don't know. Who he, I don't know who he is, but he's he's named in the story. He hires this guy named Sh- Sh- Shemaiah to make Nehemiah hide out. Sleep the night in the temple because there's an assassin trying to get you, Nehemiah. You're going to die. You should sleep in the temple where you'll be protected. But he was hired by Sambalot to intimidate him. And Nehemiah refuses to be distracted or moved. And he says, how can I do that? I'm not doing that. Here's, that's courage. What's the harm of sleeping in the temple? Uh, a lot. Who is allowed in the temple? Priests. Nehemiah would have been disqualified from his work. He would have been slandered for for trespassing where he's not supposed to be. Nehemiah refused to let these taunts move him. He was a man of severe spiritual warfare. And you can tell he prayed and prayed and prayed. So if you're in the midst of God's city, if you're in the midst of Christ, there's no better place for you to be. Stand firm. There's no better place. Don't let Demonic deception, distraction, spiritual warfare, lure you out of where you're supposed to be. And so um, we can finish by looking at uh, Nehemiah's encouragement for us to be strong in the Lord. Well, that's Paul's words, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might, put on the full armor of God, that you may be able to resist the schemes, the wiles of the devil. Um, but here Nehemiah says something similar by saying, remember the Lord, our God will fight for us. Because remember this, that discouragement happens when I compare the rubble and the trouble to my own strength. But courage happens when I compare that same rubble and trouble to God's strength. That's where we find the courage. That's why Nehemiah says, remember the Lord and he will fight for us. So that's what we're after. So how do we ensure That we continually rely on God's strength rather than leaving Jerusalem to go find other methods of tactics to win. Because that would actually be what the demons want us to do. How do we ensure that we stay in place and rely on God's strength when it gets tough? When we hit that halfway point, when we're discouraged, how do we continue to rely on him? When it doesn't seem like it's helping. Three quick ways. Oh, we'll see how quick. You know who I am. (laughs) First, um, remain in community. Remain in community. The man who goes alone, well, that first of all, that's terrible strategic warfare to be alone. It's terrible. Remain in community. Um, This comes out of chapter 3, which we looked at last week, where we see they're all building side by side. They're named around the wall. The word house is used 12 times. They're in community. But it's also furthered in verse 7 of chapter 4. When Samblat and Dubai, blah, um, blah, blah, going forward uh, towards the end of verse 7, they heard that the breaches were beginning to be closed. They were very angry. Mm-hmm. Community closes the breaches in the wall. Community is what we need to close those gaps so that the enemy can't sneak in. Community also fights on behalf of each other. We need community because we go to war for and with each other. That we saw Nehemiah say in verse fourteen Fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. You're not fighting alone. The community is a war, is a is an army. Community also spreads out the work so that you don't have to do everything. You saw that in verse 16 and 17. Half the people were holding weapons and half of them were working on the wall and some of them were actually holding two weapons as they went. But it is very clear that he divided the people in halves, some to be watchers and some to be workers. Community is what we need. Remain in community and you will rely on the Lord's strength because his strength will come to us through one another second way to remain in God's strength is to be watchful in prayer be watchful in prayer prayer is how we watch prayer is how we set that guard actually I was just reading before I got here A saint Simeon the new theologian he was back in the 1000's um, he, had, he was writing about prayer and watchfulness and he said that the two have to go together like soul and body is watchfulness and prayer And he described it as watchfulness is where you, it's like sending out a spy to go see what the enemy's up to. Where is the sin in my life? Where are my wicked thoughts? And then prayer follows up and slays the enemy. So what does this mean? It means that we live watchful lives where we're seeking and continually guarding our hearts against what the devil's trying to do. We're guarding ourselves against sin, against wicked thoughts, against wicked desires, so that when we pray, we know where those things are, and prayer comes and attacks the enemy, and we prevail. And here in Nehemiah, we see that they set up an around-the-clock prayer group that are watching all the time. Notice in verse 9, it says, We pray to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. How do they set a guard and a protection? They prayed. That was their watchfulness. That's what protected them. I wonder what would happen if we, of course, monasteries do this, but um, that's usually connected to Orthodox and Catholic churches. What would it look like for a local church like us to set up an around-the-clock prayer? How would that build God's church? I mean, I've talked to this with Tyler and with Brittany and others. And we're, we're, I'm serious. Like, that would be really cool if we could set up around-the-clock prayer. And some of us are single. We don't have kids. We don't have too much. Some of us are retired. And we can we can actually devote significant chunks of time to praying for the church. And actually, in Timothy, we see that um, the way the early church in Paul's day worked is that if there was a widow who could not be supported, the church would support the widow in return for her unending prayers for the church that's how actually monasteries began it was in paul's day with that system but what would that look like if we had round the clock prayer watching and advancing um verse 22 and 23 we also saw that they slept in jerusalem they did not take their clothes off when they slept and they kept the weapon next to them like some people in the ghetto right they sleep with a gun under their pillow it's a necessity Mm -hmm. and this is how they're living um prayer for us must be unceasing it is something we don't take off it's probably another way to put that it's not like okay i did prayer today and we move on prayer and watchfulness means i've prayed but i watch through the day i watch for the enemy's work i watch for where i'm deviating from god's ways i watch where i'm being distracted and when watchfulness notes these things we pray and we keep praying. And we throw up those arrow prayers like we saw Nehemiah do last week. We throw those quick prayers up to God through the day. Between our prayer times, there's watchfulness. This is how we are watchful in prayer. And then um, also, try praying directly against the enemy. We saw Nehemiah do that. How many times have you prayed directly against the enemy? And You're not praying to the enemy. Please don't misunderstand me. Um we're praying that God would work against the forces of darkness. Um, typically we associate that with Pentecostalism. All those Pentecostals, they're really good at praying. And we, we bind you, Satan, in the name and blood of Jesus Christ. And they go on and on. They, they say with full authority. Like, there's something admirable about that. I think sometimes it's done a little bit too confidently. But, um, there's something we can learn from that. Some people take the spiritual realm seriously. And they pray against its work. In the Old Testament, we see Israel fight against nations. But what happens in the New Testament? We're not fighting nations anymore. Christ has conquered the devil. We're fighting against demons. What's happened is we've matured. Our warfare is a, is a spiritual warfare now. It's actually a bigger warfare. We must understand that prayer is one of our main weapons. And then third... So we remain in community. These are ways that we re, we continually rely on God's strength. We remain in community. We're watchful in prayer. And third, and finally, we engage in worship seriously. We engage in worship seriously. Now, if you've been around here for some time, you'll know that when I say worship, I don't just mean singing and music. That is part of worship. but Worship is broader than that. Um, We engage in all forms of worship seriously because worship is warfare. This is how the Christian goes to war. Did you know that when we gather together, like we are now, we have gathered as God's army to do war against the wickedness and sin of the world? I don't know if you know that, but you are a warrior here tonight. Verse 18 and 19 each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he built, and the man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. You, you already get the point. They're, they're ready for warfare because their work of the, God's work went hand in hand with this needing to do battle against the real enemy. That's, the wall isn't just about them and their wall, it's about keeping the real enemy outside of God's church. Worship is warfare. Here's how we see it in the rest of Scripture. Um, you've been hearing this for some time now. Um, right, or somewhere before we sing songs, we say a prayer. Arise, O Lord, and let your foes be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. Now, that's not us declaring. Anyone in here who's unsure about God, get out of here. That is not what that prayer is. That prayer comes from Numbers chapter ten, verse thirty-five. Where Moses, it says when the ark of God was taken up, because the cloud moved on in the wilderness, they were to pack up the tabernacle and move and follow the cloud. And it it says that when, when they picked up the ark, Moses would say, arise, O Lord, as the ark went, arise, O Lord, and let your foes be scattered, let those who hate you flee before you. The ark was moving on. God's people were marching forward. And there's other, if you ever do a study with me in, um, in detail in Exodus, the tabernacle's actually, the way they camp around is it, actually designed like a military unit. It's warfare. They're going to the promised land to do warfare. And this is the, this is Moses' prayer that God would go before them and he would scatter the forces that work against God's people. Um, that's, that's one reason why we begin our worship with that prayer is because we're engaging in battle and we do not want distraction in this room. Now, people sneeze. People use the restroom. You think the music's off or you think Pastor Brandon is just, why does he not know that there's something in his beard right now or his fly or his flies down or whatever? Like those things, like that's not the distraction I'm talking about. Um, children too, right? Those are not the distractions we're talking about. We're talking about demonic activity that's set to make sure we cannot engage in God's presence. And so we pray, we sanctify this sanctuary, so that we can, as God's army, advance and not be held back. Amen. That's Numbers ten. We see that already, or as early as Numbers, that worship is warfare. We see in Second Chronicles chapter twenty, um, Hezekiah is faced with this great army. They don't know what to do. So. He puts the musicians at the front of of their military and they go forward. And it says that uh, he names all the enemies and they were confused and they basically fight against one another. And Israel wins that day because the enemies killed themselves. (laughs) This is what worship does is it throws our foes into confusion. They cannot stand the Christian who's engaged in giving their lives to Christ. Psalm 8 verse speaking of distractions, Psalm 8 verse 2 says that children are part of this warfare, which is, thankfully, one of the a good re- reason why we have children with us all the way up to the sermon, and they'll be arriving any minute here, I'm sure, um, and they're with us at the close, and they receive communion with us because children are part of the army. Psalm 8 verse 2 says, from the mouths of children and babes, you fashion praise to foil your enemy and to silence the foe and the rebel. Shame on the place that doesn't let children be part of worship because they are part of the army. In fact, they're apparently in Psalm 8 and a very effective part of God's army. Psalm 68 verse 1. Psalm 68 quotes Moses' prayer, and it begins with, Arise, O Lord, let your foes be scattered. Let those who hate you flee before you. That one's prayed twice in the Bible. But then Psalm 68 continues, and Psalm 68 is a huge Psalm celebrating Yahweh as a victorious warrior who receives tribute, and then, um, then Paul actually takes that and recites it a little differently, say that when, when Christ conquered, he gave tribute to us through the Holy Spirit, um, But it's it's this great psalm about Yahweh being this warrior. And then there's this part in verses 24 and 25 of Psalm 68. It says, they, and by they it means the demonic hordes, the enemy. They see your solemn procession, O God, the procession of my God, of my king, to the holy place. The singers in the forefront, the musicians coming last, and between them, maidens sounding their timbrels. Psalm 68 sees this festive crowd of God-worshippers coming to the temple, singing and slapping timbrels and having musicians. This procession is marching over the enemy as they go to the temple. That's how Psalm 68 sees worship. In Acts chapter 4, the church is persecuted by the religious leaders, nonetheless, in Jerusalem. And they take the spirit of Tobiah and Sanballat um, in Acts 4, verse 24, they come back persecuted. They tell the church, and you know how the church reacts? Well, they didn't go out with picket signs and angry yelling at how, you're going to hell because you did, or burn it. What was it turn or burn? They didn't do anything like that. They, they didn't make an issue of this in, in society, Acts 4.24 says this was their reaction. When they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. They didn't voice their complaints to the government. They didn't voice it to social media or any other power that could help them. They voiced it to God. They lifted up their voice to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, And now they pray Psalm 2. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then they continue to pray after praying Psalm 2. For truly in this city They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. But now, O Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal. And signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. How did they engage in warfare? They pray. They don't just, they pray. And they pray powerfully. And they pray the Psalms. They pray Psalm 2. They pray their words, and they pray the Psalms words. That's how we pray, brothers and sisters. That's how we do warfare. Then, this happens. And when they had prayed thus, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. That's Nehemiah and the workers, right? That's advancing warfare through worship. And lastly, I mean, I'm sure you could find more, but they found enough. I thought it kind of gets the point. But at the end of the Bible, we see the same thing. Revelation 4 and 5, gorgeous chapters of John seeing the worship going on in heaven. And then what happens in chapter 6? The lamb begins to open the seals to the scroll. And what happens on earth? War. The four horsemen ride forth. And then those seals lead forth to the seven trumpets. Trumpets were blown at, well, you already saw it in this text. They're blown for warfare commands. And then those trumpets lead to the seven bulls until finally the beast is destroyed when Christ comes on the white horse with his saints and glory behind him and establishes forever the new heaven and new earth. There's a little part there too, Revelation 20, about the millennium that totally skipping over for simplification's sake. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that could be a whole discussion. Um, but you see the pattern in Revelation that this is what happens when the church worships Christ. We see what's happening in heaven. This is what happens on earth when God's people engage in worship until Christ finally returns. Mm-hmm. That's powerful. So, brothers and sisters, may our God fight for us he does may you let him may we remain in community may we be watchful in prayer and may we engage in worship seriously for in this way we will leave babylon defended against discouragement amen